to Getting to the Truth in His Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And my next guest is you're multi-talented, multi-hyphenated, multi-everything. You're artist, creator, recording artist. You're doing a little bit of everything. I have Patula Caesar. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Rod. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. <laughs> so, yeah, I threw all of those out there because it's you're doing a lot. So I want to let you really dive into it a little bit more than I could do it justice. Okay. Describe your work and um, and we'll start off with describe your work and then I have my part two to that question okay. or that invitation. Okay, sure. Um, describe my work. So originally when all of my work started, I was a writer. So if you were to ask me to define what I do in one word, I would say I'm a storyteller. But over the years, I've found different mediums and different ways to tell those stories. I started telling them as a writer, um, very sort of traditional storytelling. Um, storytelling eventually led into erotic fiction and poetry. That sort of led me to doing that storytelling on stage. So for a period of time, I was actually doing erotic poetry on stage with a band and kind of doing a whole production and doing a little bit of touring. I eventually recorded some of that work also. My storytelling eventually kind of spilled over into theatrical work, which is kind of how I ended up doing what I do most of the time now, which is event production, um, live music, live performance on stage. But even in doing all of those things, ultimately what I do is I tell stories in lots of different ways. That that's great. I, I like hearing it and it's able to really you're 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 telling stories, but you're using various mediums to do it. Thus the kind of multi-hyphenated struggle I yeah. was having right there. <laughs> so 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 being someone that's wearing like multiple hats because there is a a, a back of the stage kind of component to some of the work that mm -hmm. you're doing what is your first love? Is it just like calling it the, the being a storyteller, being a writer, or do you prefer to have that one thing or do you prefer that one title and kind of expanding from that? Or do you prefer to be more multi-hyphenated in that regard? I have come to enjoy being multi-hyphenated. For a long time, I primarily considered myself a writer. And there are some days when that really is what my focus is is on writing, very traditional pen and a pad. And I'm writing stories, creating characters and stuff like that. But I am really also starting to embrace the multi-hyphenate. I feel like calling myself a storyteller really is the best and most accurate way to encompass my world at this point. A lot of it still is writing, but there's also music and live performance. And in getting into the live performance aspect, I actually get to partner with a lot of other creatives and storytellers. And we just find different ways to tell our shared stories. So whether I'm curating um, a live musical performance or whether I'm writing a story or whether I'm interviewing someone, it's still all about the telling of a story. So I, I love my multi-hyphenate, but I like boiling it down to storyteller also. <laughs> so so storyteller is the rue of the yeah. situation here. I dig it. So who or what for you is an influence on your writing? 
who is an influence on my writing? My first or even what? Yeah. My first serious, serious influence was definitely Toni Morrison. In my head, her writing was everything I wanted my writing to be. When I started reading her, I was very young and I honestly did not understand a lot of it. But even then, I just thought her writing was very beautiful, was very fluid. I liked her word choices. I liked the way she described things. So even though I didn't always get the subject matter, I just enjoyed her writing style. So that was definitely one of my earliest writing influences. And since then, it has primarily been women writers that I've, I've especially enjoyed um, sort of like the usual suspect, you know, Maya Angelou and Audre Lorde and, and those kinds of folks also love Octavia Butler. But I have found just the way women in general, Black women in particular, weave their words has always just really, really been special to me. So that's always the way I've hoped to, uh, to frame the work that I do. That it could, if it could be even a tenth of that, I'd be thrilled. <laughs> it's, it, that's that's good, and that's yeah. Because I, I think finding like influence and in, I think in, in in folks that may have maybe a similarity to what your background mm -hmm. may be, or it, it's like it, it resonates that. It's like oh, I I get this. I may not understand all of it at this moment. I get this from this standpoint yeah. though, and at least it's a base. Yes, yes, so, and especially for storytelling because ultimately. Everyone tells stories, some people with visual art or whatever. And ultimately, I have found as I've written and done other things over the years, every story you tell ultimately is about you. So yeah. it kind of is, makes sense that the people, the artists that would probably first resonate with you the most deeply are the ones that in some way were a reflection of you. So all that any storyteller does is just kind of tell stories about themselves in different ways, kind of over and over and over. I, I had to I had to do this exercise recently. It was a uh, conversation I was having with another guest, and we had the kind of same experience with a um, with a, a, a writer and kind of speaking on subject matter that we're both familiar with. It's like mm -hmm. I live that. I don't need to read the rest of this. And I was like, I know this full story. And I was like, hold up, let me finish it. Let me give this writer their due right. and get more so their experience. But it's like I'm on that base level of like I understand what's happening here, bro. I get it. Right. <laughs> like I understand what it is to be a a black male in Baltimore and you know having just different experiences that you encounter, having to be hard, having to be tough. Right. And, you know, just having someone else's, you connect on it on such a level and you're like, all right, let me step back a little bit. It's like, I know the story just enough, but it, it captured me and it brought me in. Right. Right. So, so for you, what would you say is something that, or maybe um, writing that you've come back to like a lot that, and this is not a question I've offered before, but mm -hmm. maybe something that you've come back to, like I, you read this book maybe early, early on or read this work maybe early, early on and you kind of revisit it pretty regularly. Is Who comes to mind when you think of something like that? Okay. Uh, the A book that I revisit, and it's funny because there are books I revisit periodically just to see how I feel about them today as opposed to how I felt about them 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or whatever. So Toni Morrison's Sula is a book that I revisit. Um, it's interesting, just as you have other experiences in life and you revisit stories, 
you see them differently. The person that you might've felt like was the hero, you know, a few experiences down the road and five years later, they're the villain in your mind or vice versa. So with Sula, I definitely, after, you know, I read it as a young woman and sort of saw it one way. And um, in the story, um, a woman is, she sleeps with her best friend's husband. So when I was young, that was a very just straightforward, like, oh gosh, that's so horrible. She's the worst person on the earth. And as I got a little older and had more experiences, I sort of applied more nuance to the to that particular circumstance and other plot lines in the book. So that's definitely an example of a book I go back and revisit and I see it diff- a little differently each time. But I tend to do that with a lot of books where I just kind of will go back and just see it differently just because of where I am in my life at the time. I, I'm, I'm that way definitely with movies and looking at that as another means for, for telling stories. Yeah, with, with movies too. Yeah, definitely with movies too. Because, you know, especially in the times we're in now, there are a lot of things that just did not age real well. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's like things that even when they were popular or when they were released, even at the time they kind of pinched me like, oh, I'm not sure, but now you look at it again, you're like, oh, geez, really? How how this just kind of get under the radar, over the radar or whatever? Yeah, it's like, who was in that room and who thought that that was going to fly? You're an idiot. And, yeah. Yeah. and you know, to, to put it bluntly. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think at times the, the, the key thing that I heard was the, the word nuance. And I think that I... I I, I think that the zeitgeist is going to sound too pretentious, but I think that's the word I want to use here. Mm. It's not nuanced enough because I, I guess the what's being driven, it doesn't have that time and that separation from it to come back to whatever the issue is, to have a more nuanced take on it. It's just extremes. Right. Nu- nuance is very unpopular right now. It's very yes. unpopular. You know, if, if nuance existed, you know, social media would not exist. Boom. Because, yeah. you know, social media is all about or what drives it. But its heartbeat is extremes, extreme viewpoints, extreme opinions, just battling about whatever we can find to battle about today. And, you know, nuance is just not unpopular. You'd have to actually slow down and listen and think. And who's got time for that? Yeah. And uh, it's it's really odd and how, how these things pop up. It's like you can find anything on the Internet. We can go back forever and check out any of these things, the history on things and so on. But even with that time remove, if it feels like it's new, we're just reacting to it yes. and we're going with extremes. It's not you know, it's almost like this this thing I used to listen to from one of my ther- therapists that I had. And I used to ask, I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. And he's like to try to describe it. And it wouldn't be, I'm mad about this. I'm sad. I'm happy. It wouldn't be those really strong base emotions. It would be mm-hmm. something more complex. Right. I think we're doing the opposite online. <laughs> yes. Yes, definitely. It's very, very black and white. So the whole idea of, you know, shades of gray and, you know, all those little, little tiny things that you really need to examine. Like I said, who's mm-hmm. got time for that? You know, where's the sound bite? You know, where's the explosive comment that generates all of the, you know, energy and such, yeah. you know, that that's what I need. I don't need to critically think. Why would I do that? That's not cute. How can we caption this? Yeah. <laughs> um, so what was the first story that you ever wrote and what, what happened to it? 
Um, okay, so I was not was not particularly popular when I was growing up. I was kind of the weird, nerdy kid, and I had the thickest glasses in the history of vision. Ever. I was just set up to fail, basically. So when I got into middle school where popularity becomes, you know, crucially important, I I was just a mesh. I was socially awkward. I was physically awkward. It was just not a good look. Fortunately, they put me in one of those gifted and talented education classes. So I was in a group of equally nerdy kids. But even in that group, I was still kind of like the most nerdy of the nerdy kids. And I really desperately wanted to be like, the, at least one of the cool kids among the uncool kids. And the only thing I really was good at was writing. So I had to do some kind of assignment for my English class and I decided to write a story. So I wrote this really crazy, wild, over the top action, adventure, espionage, martial arts, um, military, futuristic, dystopian thing but I had a lot of my classmates in it as characters. <laughs> so, and it was like about 75 pages long. We were supposed to write a short story, but I wrote this long thing and um, it was like James Bond meets the Matrix. It was kind of crazy, but yeah. I submitted it and my English teacher loved it. And she spent a week reading it to the class and they were all thrilled because they were all in it. And then they're like, can you write another story? And can you make me the villain or the person or whatever? So that sort of made me popular in a weird way. And that was the first story I ever wrote. That's that's great. <laughs> Gosh, that, I, I, it sounds so manipulative as I tell the story now. But yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> I, I had a um I had a version because I, I used to do music terribly. Uh, <laughs> I, I was like a a a rapper or have you, and Aww. I did this rap song about Macbeth because I was nerdy and I wore thick glasses as well. But I'm six four, so it's like I can't hide either. Oh man, I'm so, sorry. <laughs> I, and I was trying to impress like this this girl lives in our class. She was like the biggest model there, and she thought I was funny. So some guy did a song, and it was doing all the DJ Clue ad libs and all of this ridiculous stuff. So I happened to find a dubbing machine outside of a school. It was just like this is here for a reason. I'm taking this back, and I was able to record a rap song, and. That I somehow I made the mistake of giving it to my English teacher, and she was like, "You really wrote this? You understand Macbeth?" And she was playing it, and I did all the ad libs, and it was called Murder Mac, and I just wanted to say "out damn spot" all the time. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was rude. Oh, okay. <laughs> so apparently, I became relatively popular amongst the models because she kept calling me Murder Mac in the hallway. And I was like, she does not know my name, but oh, wow. <laughs> I'll be Murder Mac, I guess. Did you get the girl? I got the number. Um, okay. And I was like, At I don't know age, how to talk to her. At that age, yes. that counts. Yes, as a 16 year old, I, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so let's talk about advice a little bit. Um, okay. and, and people throw advice around and it sometimes it, and from my perspective, it feels like people don't really give out real stuff. They give out stuff that might be bad or it might feel like the great anointed me is only <laughs> able to be successful. Yes. So what would you say maybe the one of the worst pieces of advice you've, you've heard um, like um, authors give uh, writers, writers and maybe flip it? What what advice would you give someone that wants to get into either erotic fiction or just writing altogether? OK, 
So I've certainly gotten a lot of advice. And I will say I'm, the worst advice I've gotten has been from horrible writers. Well, <laughs> strangely enough, um, the the bad advice I've gotten in regard to writing, my writing in particular, when I was younger, it always I always was told that my writing was too descriptive and I used too many words. Hmm. And but that's what writers do. So you're basically asking me not to do the thing that is part of the thing that I do, which is stupid. So that that was a lot of a lot of the advice I got early on in my writing was that too long, too wordy, too descriptive, too much in that respect. Now, when I got older and actually managed to get assistance and advice and training from good writers who were successful in their own right and more importantly comfortable enough in their success that they not did not mind giving actual helpful advice what they told me about writing was that first you need to figure out what you want to do with your writing some people want to be published some people want to write for television or want to write for uh, for movies or whatever so the advice I give people now when they ask, well, I want to write. Well, what does that mean? You want to write what? Mm -hmm. You want to write poems? You want to write? Writing means a lot more than it probably ever has thanks to the internet. You could, you yep. know, to saying you want to write doesn't, you know, the world is really your oyster. So now when people say to me, um, you know, help me with my writing, well, what are, you, what, what are you trying to do with your writing? So depending on what your goals are, then I would offer more specific advice, you know, depending on like, what are you trying to do? The general advice I offer writers, and this is probably the best advice I, I've ever gotten in regard to writing is that the first draft is always trash. It just is. There is no way to successfully write well the first time out. You just have to get, you have to write past that first draft that is just absolutely awful. And even if you write something and you look at it and it's your first draft and you think it's good, trust me, it's not. I promise you, it's not. If you were to give it even 24 hours, you would write something way, way better than next day. So that is, those are the pieces of advice I now give writers, you know, determine what you're trying to write, get the first draft out of your system because you have to get past that to get to anything good. That's legit. That is, that's totally legit. Um, people come to me cause I, I've, I've been podcasting for almost 13 years and mm -hmm. people come to me and they'll say, yeah, how do I get started with this? And, you know, I, I kind of give the same advice. I look, you, you want to do probably five to 10, one recognize what you're doing. Why are you doing it? And what's your reasoning for it? Are you just someone that just wants to talk and you think you're good at it? That's cool. But what are you trying to do here? What's for the audience? And is it for the audience? And then from there, you need to do something as like kind of a portfolio. So you have an idea of what your tone is, what your flavor is, what you're trying to do. And, you know, go from there. Like I try to say, do like 10 episodes. They don't have to be long, mm -hmm. you know, but do 10 of them. And so you can go back and critique and like, oh, I suck for these first five or I've gotten better. I see progress. And that's when you're truly ready as opposed to just kind of learning on the fly. And 
I, I remember putting together this manual for a class I taught at Hopkins mm. and I had the first line in there, learn from my mistakes. I've made them all. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, really kind of putting that out there because, you know, people will waste time and money and saying, oh, well, the audio quality has to sound better. And you spend five, $600, $1,000 on equipment and you don't have anything to say. <laughs> so it's just like, really, that's, that's where you want to start at what you, the con the quality will always get better, but the content that's where, or what you're trying to do with the content, that's where your focus needs to be at. Right. Okay. Okay. At least that's my thought. <laughs> right. No, I, and I do hear a lot of people say, you know, I want to do a podcast and then, you know, I've learned not to roll my eyes and yeah, I've learned not to roll my eyes. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I read about um, you writing a memoir. So speak on that a bit. Uh, see, she's such a bright girl in American story. Yes. So speak on that a bit. Okay. Um, I published my memoir in 2019. She's such a bright girl. And um, I am not originally from Baltimore. I moved here when I was very, very young. I'm originally born in New Jersey, but I feel like I've been here a long time. I feel like I'm grandfathered in, but I do like to offer up that disclaimer to pay respect to the total natives because it's as it should be. Um, but the book is about my upbringing and how colorism in particular affected my upbringing. The super, super short version of my upbringing was that uh, I was born into a very traditional family. Uh, mom and dad were married, dad worked, um, very good job. Mom was a housewife. She stayed home and her job was to take care of me and to, and to run the house. They had very well-defined traditional roles as far as you know who did what in the house. My father was very, very light-skinned, very straight-haired, and uh, he grew up in the South where being a black man who could potentially pass for white was dangerous because he could, you know, soil some unsuspecting white woman and produce brown swirly babies. And how would she explain that? Well. So because of that, he quickly realized that he had to kind of court the favor of the white men in the town he lived. So he had to make sure he was deferential, Smart enough so that they would hire him to, you know, do get so he could get work in the town, but not threatening. So he had to walk a lot of fine lines just to kind of protect himself and protect his family. But because he did appear white and he learned to sort of present himself as such, you know, proper English, whatever that is at the time and such. So they did give him opportunities in the town. They lived in a, he lived in a coal mining town. Most black men worked in the mines. He did not have to work in the mines. They allowed him to work in the office of the coal mining company. So he made more money there. He didn't put his life in jeopardy the way the black men who went into the mines did. He was able to take care of his family. So there was a certain amount of light skin privilege he got from those white men. So I come along very light skinned also, and he felt that I should follow that same path. So that meant... Um, for many years, there was no black music in our house. My father was a painter. He never painted black people. Um, there was a lot of concern expressed about my hair because my hair was not as straight as my dad's was. Um, they gave me ballet lessons, piano lessons, opera lessons, and all of the things that my dad perceived as white 
where all of the things that were brought into the house and all of the things, all of the instruction that I was given was around these white things. And I grew up in that environment thinking that was normal because I had nothing to compare it to. Then I moved to Baltimore. And Baltimore is very different from the part of New Jersey I grew up in. My dad could kind of get away with this in the part of New Jersey where we live. That did not fly well here. So um, as I got exposed, and plus we were living in New Jersey and coming here for us was coming to the South. Now I understand Baltimoreans don't think of themselves as the South, but when I was in New Jersey and I said, we're moving to Baltimore, they kept telling us we were moving down South. Mm -hmm. So for the longest time I moved here and people would say, oh, I moved down south and people would get really mad. You're not in the south. (laughs) In New Jersey, they said I was. I'm sorry. So um, I came here, definitely got exposed to a whole different mindset. So what I was experiencing out in the world was very different from what was happening in my house. Um, My dad ran the usual kind of anti-black playbook. Um, At first he said, don't date dark-skinned black men. Then eventually he said, don't date any black men. Um, he said that they were brutal and brutish. And he did not raise me to be mistreated in that way. Um, he, yeah, there, he. I wanted to go to an HBCU. He was horrified, like, no, we're not doing that. So he just ran the very kind of anti-black playbook. So the book is about all of those experiences I had with him growing up and about the intense deprogramming that I had to do once I became an adult to kind of land in a place that wasn't so mentally conflicted. So um, when I published the book, um, for um, I used to go around to like branches of the Enoch Pratt Library and do little workshops on colorism as it relates to race and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Sounds very, very interesting and something to take a take a read of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that it's it 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 was a lot to get through, but I will say I think ultimately it gave me a perspective of blackness that I wouldn't have gotten honestly if I were a different shade. Because for my dad, his feeling was that being light-skinned gave him some ability to opt out of certain black things Mm -hmm. because he could assimilate if he chose to. And he wanted me to opt out out of certain black things. And it wasn't from a place of malice. He knew life would be hard for me as a black woman. He had seen his mother experience all kinds of things. And he genuinely just wanted me to bypass all of the crap that would probably enter my life as a black woman. But he felt like I could opt out of those things if I would embrace some of these mindsets. And so I did not want to. It's like you won the melanin crap shoot. <laughs> Don't uh, waste so, it. <laughs> I, so I was told, but I, but I, the, what it did do, which I think my father didn't realize was from the time I was born, they were kind of molding me in this way. Right. Mm-hmm. And what I got from it right away was, well, what's so wrong with me? It was like a whole lot of energy was going into forming, you know, making sure that I thought of myself in a certain way, making sure I presented myself in a certain way, making sure I spent time with this type of 
person as opposed to that type of person. And what I got out of that very early was, wow, there must be a lot wrong with me because you all spend a lot of time just assuming how I am is just faulty and needs correction. So that was something I had to figure out once I became an adult. Got it. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. So the last last two questions I have, they, they relate mm-hmm. to current day activities within the city. Okay. Uh, so, so I read aside from your, your writing and yeah, some, some, of the, some of the work that you've been doing that you started um, Caesar Productions. And mm-hmm. over the last couple of years, you've been a director of community engagement for the Baltimore Rock Opera Society. So yeah. um, speak on the work that's going on between the two, because um, <laughs> I, I know about the Rock Opera Society a little bit. And mm-hmm. it feels like there's a little bit of a shift going on, especially with maybe upcoming program and all, <laughs> programming and all. So, yeah, speak on that a little bit. I'm burning the lead a little bit there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So a couple years ago, I saw an ad somewhere where the Baltimore Rock Opera Society was looking for a director of community engagement. And in the ad, they were looking for someone to lead those efforts because they wanted to be a less racist organization in Baltimore and wanted um, the work that they do to be more reflective of the actual demographic of the city. Now, I too was familiar with the Baltimore Rock Opera Society before I saw that ad. So I chuckled a little bit, <laughs> but I like a challenge. And I actually thought it might be interesting because one of the things I definitely had experienced in doing work with Caesar Productions and in producing shows in general is that a lot of times, especially for black creators, it's completely a DIY situation. You know, the quality of what you produce really depends on how deep your pockets happen to be at the time. You know, you front a lot of your own money for your shows, for your other activities, for your events. And if you're fortunate, you might see a profit at the end. But it takes time to learn how to orchestrate your activities so that you don't, you're not always, you know, coming out of pocket and not making anything. So for a lot of time, the things that I did cost me money and I just had the experience. But as I got a little more skilled and got a broader network, I got to a place where I actually was making some money. So I saw this ad and I was like, okay, it would be nice to produce some things and spend other people's money, honestly. Um, And uh, yeah, they, they could definitely use some help and maybe I would want to do this. So we sat down, myself and the executive director, um, Aaron Keating, we interviewed, we talked about a lot of things and uh, they hired me. So the first thing I said, okay, you all do these shows and they're fairly big and elaborate. And let's be honest, they're very white in every way from the cast on stage, to the folks behind the scenes, to the content, to the everything. They're just all the white things gathered into a theater. Yes. And then you asked me the question, why don't Black people, more Black people, because a few do go to their shows. Why don't more Black people come to their shows? Why would they? Right. Look at them. You know, and then, of course, we actually had to have a very frank discussion about how... Black people, truthfully, don't always feel safe around large numbers of white people. Yes. Just to be perfectly honest. 
So we had some hard conversations and they just, and I said, well, you know, if you're serious about this, uh, how about you do a black show? Like seriously, a black show. And they were like, okay, what'd you have in mind? So uh, last year we did a series of online concerts because COVID called Rock Opera 101. Um, they featured a locally based performer, Jonathan Gilmore, and they kind of were a trip through the history of music then how um, rock music came on the scene and how that eventually came into theater. And it went pretty well. Um, people liked it. It was definitely different for bros because it was very um, blatantly and stridently Black. There's really no other way to put it. So um, after that went well, earlier this year, we were talking. I said, I'd like to do something even more, even bigger, just even more. And when we started planning our current show, COVID seemed to be sort of fading into the distance. So we planned a pretty large production. And then the Delta variant said, no, not yet. <laughs> so we made some adjustments to the show, but what we have ended up with is a show called Funktopia, a super Afro intergalactic tribute to hip hop and funk. And what we're doing is we're playing some of the funkier hip hop music that you find out there. And we're actually playing some of the original songs and music that's been heavily sampled yeah. in hip hop. Um, we have a huge band. We have a bunch of background singers. We are building Funktopia as a place on stage. So there are residents of Funktopia. There may or may not be a pole dancer. That's what I had heard. I don't know. But there are all these characters and there's this place that is full of this music. So this is what we're doing at the Voxel for Fridays in September. Uh, we're doing shows September 10th, 17th, and 24th. Funktopia. That's what's going down. That sounds phenomenal, and that is that sounds super black too, which I admire. It, it, it is, and in addition to doing the three shows, we are actually live streaming the last show because we do recognize we're doing a very limited audience, and people have to be masked, and there are the COVID protocols in place. But we do recognize some people just aren't comfortable coming out, and that's fine because we are live streaming the, sh the show on September twenty fourth. So if you're not inclined to come out and be in a crowd, or if you can't get a ticket, because it may, it's quite likely will sell out. You can definitely check it out on Rose's website on September 24th. So well, you can see it. There's no excuse not to see it. Yeah, you, you've heard it here, folks. Yes. <laughs> so um, you're an overachiever. Um, you you answered my last question within that. So thank you so much. Um, uh, wow, you picked that up already. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> so um, as we wrap up here, because I, I don't have any further questions, I've gotten everything. I've I wanted to get out of this interview. I'm feeling like really efficient here. Um, oh, any <laughs> any um, any final thoughts uh, that you want to share before we um, wrap up, and anything you want to shout out before we wrap up here? Um. I guess I want to shout out um, the Funktopia crew. Um, I appreciate all y'all for the hard work that uh, they've done on this show. Um, I guess I also want to shout out bros because I will admit this is something different for them. Um, and it may make some folks uncomfortable. Oh, well. Uh, I think, uh, uh, other than that, 
I guess my only other shout out is that uh, I encourage everyone to try to arrange your life in some in such a way so that some part of it can be dedicated to whatever it is you love to do. I understand not everybody can put themselves in a position where their their job or their livelihood can be what supports them financially or whatever, but there are certainly ways to arrange your life so that a piece of your life can really be what you would like. So I encourage you to figure out for yourself how to do that. That's a very important gem you just dropped there. And I, I think I think that's very needed because people don't know how to do it. And when you like, I, I get this thing sometimes where people will say, you have things arranged in a certain way. You're doing so many podcasts, you're doing this, you're doing that. And I was like, I have it arranged in a way that this fits what I need. And I learned that at a very young age, you know, getting a nice job, making nice money. And I felt unsatisfied. And I was like, what can I do to change this? I'm going to try to get that satisfaction from material means or other things that I really don't want, but they feel good in that microwavable sense. And once I started doing things that satiated me creatively while being able to uh, feed myself and keep a roof over my head, that's the sweet spot for me. And that's what's been working for me. Yeah. And it, it certainly is not easy. It is it has definitely taken me some time to position myself in my life in a way so that the I have the space in my life to be as creative as I need to be to function, really. And I had to make that a priority at some point, like, OK, I really need to do this or it's going to be a problem for me and anybody who cares anything about me. So you have to I had to make it a priority. I had to arrange my life so that there was space for it. And that certainly was not easy. But now that I've sort of managed to do that, I just feel better in my life. So I really recommend that to everyone. That doesn't necessarily mean you go and quit your nine to five and you go sell matchsticks on the corner or something crazy like that. But especially with the internet these days, there are lots of ways to find space for whatever you love. Yeah. So do that, please. You'll thank me. You'll come back and say, yeah, she said to do that. Thank you. <laughs> do it. Well, thank you so much. That was another freebie gem right there. Uh, so I'm going to do my wrap up. So okay. um, for Patula Caesar, I am Rob Lee saying that there's art in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for it. <laughs>